Dollars to Donuts with your host, Steve Portigal. Well, hi. If you're a new listener, welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk to people who lead user research in their organization. Otherwise, if you're not a new listener, welcome back to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast. Well, you get it. It's been a little while since the last episode, and I'm really happy to be back making new episodes for you. In a little bit, I'll talk about how you can support me and the podcast, but first I wanted to mention an interesting article I'm reading. It's from the New Yorker magazine from the January 28, 2019 issue. It's an article by Robert Caro, who is an author of, among other things, a multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. This article is adapted from his memoir called Working, Researching, Interviewing, Writing, and his recollections about those activities are what caught my eye. He describes going to do research at the Johnson Library and Museum and going through boxes and boxes of papers. It's the hard and tedious work of investigative journalism. And what struck me was the amount of inferring and cross-referencing and delving he was doing. He was coming up with facts and perspective that were not there for the taking, but were from analyzing and synthesizing the information that he did have as well as what he didn't have. Later on the article, he talks about the importance of place in his research, that to understand Johnson, he had to leave New York where he was living and really spend time in the Texas Hill Country. He writes, As soon as we moved there, as soon as the people of the Hill Country realized we were there to stay, their attitude toward us softened. They started to talk to me in a different way. I began to hear the details that they had not included in the anecdotes they had previously told me. And finally, he talks about silence in interviewing, citing two characters from fiction, Inspector Maigret and George Smiley, and their respective tactics to, quote, keep themselves from talking and let silence do its work. Where Maigret fiddles with his pipe and Smiley uses his tie to polish his glasses. And Carroll himself has his own brilliant technique. While I'm waiting for the person I'm interviewing to break a silence by giving me a piece of information I want, I write SU for shut up in my notebook. If anyone were ever to look through my notebooks, he would find a lot of SUs. Speaking of the connections between journalistic interviewing and user research, I want to recommend the podcast from 2017 called The Turnaround. It's interviews with different kinds of journalists about doing interviews and getting to the story. I learned as much from the contrast between the different objectives that our different professions have as I did from the best practices that they described that apply directly to the work that I do as a user researcher. So I encourage you to check it out. It's called The Turnaround. Now, obviously, I'm back with more episodes of Dollars to Donuts, and I'm taking more of an open-ended approach to new episodes. They'll appear as they're ready without any specific frequency. It takes a lot to do this podcast, and rather than taking advertising or doing crowdfunding, I want to ask you to support the podcast and me. You can hire me. I'm a consultant. I plan and lead user research projects. I coach teams who are working to learn from their customers. And I run training workshops to teach people how to be better at research and analysis. You can buy my books for yourself and your friends and your colleagues. I've got two books, The Classic Interviewing Users, and more recently, a book of stories about what happens when researchers, when they go out in the field. It's called Doorbells, Danger, and Dead Batteries. Both books are for sale at Amazon, as well as Rosenfeld Media. You can also give this podcast a star rating and a review in iTunes, and you can review either book on Amazon. With your support, I can keep doing this podcast for you. Let's get to my interview with Leanne Waldahl. She is the Senior Director of Product Research at New Relic. She's led research at Autodesk and Dropbox, as well as running her own research agency for almost 17 years. Well, thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. So let's start with uh, just a basic kind of introduction. Do you want to tell us who you are, what kind of work you do? Sure. What your company is? Yeah. I'm Leanne Waldahl. I am Senior Director of Product Research at New Relic. Um, New Relic does application performance monitoring, usually makes people's eyes glaze over. But basically, we have a tool that developers and engineers primarily primarily that group, um, uses to monitor the traffic on websites and mobile apps. So if you think about streaming media, online retail, financial services, tons and tons of um, data and traffic, um, their site reliability team or engineering team might use us to monitor that to make sure nothing goes down. 
And I'm based in San Francisco, and I'm a part of the design team, which is a part of the product team. And the product team is mostly in Portland, Oregon. We have a smaller portion of it in San Francisco, and we also have a team in Phoenix and in Barcelona. Can we talk a little more about New Relic and sort of who the customers are? Um, you, you said to make sure that it's not down, but I'm assuming that that's it's not just that binary state like is, is Amazon up or is Amazon down or Netflix. Yeah, so it's to monitor it. So, you know, be watching to see if something happens that's slow that's slower. Usually it doesn't matter if something's faster. It means you've optimized performance and things are running really well. So if things are going slower, um, you notice that um, people are having longer wait times for page loads or checkout loads or media streaming or whatever sort of thing they're trying to do in your app. Um, you would have spent considerable amount of time setting us up, our products up basically, to then do all that monitoring and raise alerts when something goes goes wrong. Okay, so it's not up and down, it's slow and it could be any part of Exactly. of a Yeah, lag make. time, checkouts not happening and the amount of time that you expect it to. And did you say like did you use the phrase reliability engineers is that the Yeah, so okay. um, the new role that basically Google created about 10, 10-ish years ago is the site reliability engineer. They wrote a book about site reliability engineering. And so our target user is usually called a DevOps engineer or a site reliability engineer. If you are a more modern um, company with the way that you're keeping track of um, your website and your apps, then you probably actually have a development operations team or a site reliability team. If you're not quite there yet, then these people might be a part of an engineering team or, you know, IT operations or something. Okay, that's good. Good context. Um, now, so then you said the uh, you're part of the design team, which sits in the product team. Yeah, yeah. So, so at New Relic, engineering and product and design all report up to the chief product officer. Different companies do it different ways. You know, engineering might be alongside product or design. Design might be alongside. You know, but at our company, if you're in the product org, you belong to the design team, the product team, or the engineering team, or a few different other teams that are in the org. Okay. So what? Uh, how long have you been in the role that you're in? I've been at New Relic for six months. I did a similar job at Autodesk um, before New Relic for about a year and a half, and before that, I did a. I had a similar role at Dropbox for a couple of years. How do you compare and contrast those those three organizations and kind of what you? saw and what the trajectory was kind of in those roles? Well, we could start with Dropbox. So Dropbox was private, pre-IPO. It was very much a unicorn. When I started there, it had, you know, four to 600 people. I don't remember exactly how many. Um, there was no research. Um, they had a small design team. They had, as a lot of tech companies at that time, um, being a unicorn, had tons of engineers. And also because Dropbox is a consumer app as well as a business app, everybody used it, so they felt like they knew his Everybody that worked there. Everybody that worked yeah. there, yeah. yeah. So I started setting up a research team there um, and grew it as the design team was growing. That's different from Autodesk, where I went next. Very old company, very fascinating products with fascinating customers and use cases. Um, and people there who were researchers there who'd been researchers there for a long time. And what I was doing there was combining research and analytics together. At Dropbox, analytics was separate. Um, and I had a small team that was more globally dispersed. At Dropbox, my team was all in San Francisco to start. Here at New Relic, when I joined, there was one researcher here in San Francisco and one in Portland, and a similar, a similar sort of tone around a lot of the people who work here at the company are site reliability engineers or have been, so they know a lot about the market and a lot about the users. And so we're basically here to help the company um, understand all of the new users it's acquired since it started, because it's a different company now than it was 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, New Relic was a company that um, was mostly um, reaching out to developers and engineers to use its product, and now we're mostly focused on enterprise, and we have lots of enterprise customers now. And there's that classic, uh, I mean, you referenced this, right? People think they know their customer because they are yeah. users, yeah. right? But, but you're kind of saying... Yes, to a certain extent. I don't. I don't hear you shutting that down. You're kind of saying, no. It's like yes, and the um, the marketplace out there has changed, and maybe there's something new that um, we're not looking at right now. And also, I've noticed that for companies where they maybe used to do like 
contextual inquiry and go out and visit their customers and users and understand them deeply. They, in the last 10 to 15 years, companies have tend to move to um, surveys and remote interviews and surveys and remote interviews and stepped away from that sort of like deep understanding you get from being in a room with someone or on a construction site or, you know, you know, on the road with them when they're using your mobile app or whatever it is. So you can see everything around them while you're using your product or your app. And when you move away from that, you lose sight of that like holistic story of the customer experience. And then um, research can come in and do that for you. Why do you think that there is that movement away from, the movement towards the remote and the movement away, away from the contextual work? Contextual work takes time and effort. It can be exhausting. Um, it can be also being exhausting to do it and exhausting to come back and like know what to do with all that data, how to tell a story out of it and how to decide how it can have impact or value or sort of the like, now what do we do? I think also as humans, we get really familiar with where we are and we neglect to notice that the world around us has changed. So that's back to your point then. We, you know, we started this company based on work that we'd done and skills that we had and and users that we knew that we were and the world moves on and shifts and new customers. So that's... It's And it's not just New Relic or Autodesk or Dropbox. That happens at any company. You can be in banking or in legal. Ask anybody who's been there a long time compared with a person who just started. They're having much different experiences of it. So you, you described, I mean, especially with Dropbox and New Relic, this point at which the company had some or had little or no research. Um, and that is not unique. We know lots of oh, yes. companies like that. What Do you have a, a hypothesis about... What's going on? Like, there's a point at which someone like you starts talking to these companies and starts saying, "Hey, here's what I would do if, if you, you know, had me come in and work with you." What's going on beforehand? Like, what's the 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 point of need or of pain that's identified inside these companies when they realize? Sure. Yeah. So what I've noticed at the companies I've worked at, as well as companies I was interviewing at for this sort of position, and companies I know um, the story around when they hired someone in sort of like a director or higher role in research, usually something changes in revenue. um, And that change in revenue sets forward sort of like, how do we figure out what's going on? And if they have someone who's currently working there in a role who has had experience in the past with doing market research or doing churn research, then those people will start to raise the flag of like, oh, we have to do research, and then it's how do we do it. So that's one reason that someone brings someone in to do it. Um, another reason is that um, they there's sort of like a groundswell of engineers, product managers, and designers who are telling the people who make hiring decisions, we need someone to be in charge of design or we need someone to be in charge of research. We're doing a lot of this ourselves and we don't feel like we're doing it well enough or we don't have enough, to, you know, we, for example, do lots and lots of interviews but don't have time to synthesize the data. So could you please hire a researcher to work with me? So sometimes that happens. Another way it happens, um, which is how it happened here at New Relic, is that the company decides to hire uh, like a VP or SVP of design. And then that person who knows that, oh, this is what a design team looks like. You have someone who's focusing on content design and language and someone who's focusing on interaction design and visual design. And I also need someone who's focused on research. So there's multiple, sometimes it's from the top down, sometimes it's from the ground up. Um, Sometimes um, it's, there used to be this role to com- at the company before and someone left or was laid off or whatever, and then they just didn't backfill it. And then after a while realized, oh, that's really a role that's really important. We, we need that. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, I used to think that maybe it was, you know, sort of like a trend, like everybody's starting to be customer centric or user centric or, you know, whatever that means. And so then they were like, oh, well, we, you know, Joe down the block is doing that. So we need to do this too. And what do we do? Oh, we hire someone to run research. As I have been interviewing for jobs over the year and talking to different companies and doing these jobs, I've realized, no, there's actually something that happens inside the company that causes that change. It's not so much, um, you know, like copying a competitor or, you know, another company that you care about. You might do that with engineering or something, but research is sort of like the first thing to go if you start running out of money. And I've seen um, hopeful examples in startups recently where even though there are only three to five people, they bring in someone for research. And that's highly unusual. 
Usually, if you're starting up a company, you have seed money or you have your first round, the first people you're hiring are engineers. Um, you're not making one of your first 10 hires a researcher. So I know of some examples now around the San Francisco Bay Area where they've actually brought someone in whose role is to do research really early in the company. And that either points to a certain amount of humility around, oh, maybe just because I am the user doesn't mean I know the users, or because they're going into a space they don't know, they had just had a good idea about it, and they really need to understand the space. That's an encouraging sign, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Is there a distinction between... You know, in, in all these different, you gave a number of different scenarios where kind of research comes in. Do you see a distinction in sort of the context or the, I guess, the action that's being taken when uh, bringing in a person to do research versus bringing in a person to lead, manage, run, build research? Yeah. So if you're brought in as a person to do research, you're usually reacting to the things you're being asked to do. Um, you usually don't get to pull your head up and do strategic work. You're doing lots of like compare this design with this, do this survey to answer this question. Um, you know, help me with like interviewing these six users and in, in remote interviews. If you're being brought in as someone to say like where should research fit into the company, it's um, it's more challenging but more interesting and exciting because then you're being told like tell us what we should know, like where should we go with this? Um, you know, should we? You know, are you going to focus more on, you know, the market research side or the sales research side? Or are you going to focus more on the product and design side? What are, what are all the things that we need? What kind of programs do we need? How do we get access to users? You know, how do we interact with users and engage users? There's just all these little pieces of how a research sort of like process and practice runs inside of a company that is great fun to put together because you have to do it based on who you're working with and the culture of that organization. It's not just a cookie cutter that you put into a company. Yeah. Is there a trajectory from one to the other? Like someone that's hired because the need is to do research, is there a trajectory for that person to, you know, answering the kinds of questions that you're talking about? That's yeah. Yeah. I think if that's, you know, sort of like the way you work or your personality or the way you're motivated, you can get there. For example, I have someone on my team right now who I mentioned to the other day, like you would make, she's a researcher. And I said, you know, like you, you could make someday if you wanted to a really amazing research operations manager because you're really good at all these pieces around managing the research, communicating it because half of research is PR and sales. You know, you have to find the people to engage with it, to sell it to at the end. You know, you want your research to have impact on product or marketing campaign or whatever you're doing. So you have to gather the people around you. You have to keep track of, particularly in a B2B company, who are all the people who have to be involved if I want to go visit customers? So in a consumer company, you just go out and find people, you talk to them, you do whatever you want with them. At a B2B company, you have to be engaging with customer success, with sales roles, whatever they're called, account execs, account managers, whatever that company calls them. Um, you have to often also be engaging with product managers, designers, design managers, um, engineers. Um, didn't used to be, just as a stereotype, interested in research, and now at some companies they're very interested. And so managing all those types of people that you either have to get approval from or you need to make sure that they're bought into what you're doing or you need them to come along with you and do it takes a lot of work. And so there's this whole new role of research operations that usually helps keep track of that. Um, and I've noticed some researchers have a real knack for sort of like managing all those details around their project and then shining a light on it and sort of going out and selling it in sort of like a marketing campaign or they just know who to like schmooze with and talk with. And some researchers are really good at like doing the research and writing the report and sharing it. And I pointed out to her, I was like, huh, this is something you are doing for our team without being asked. Like, that's a real superpower. And does that start to change the, well, I, I think you said this at least indirectly, does, does someone who's shining around operations like your colleague here, does that start to change how research is perceived or experienced by others in the organization? Yeah, especially if you're in an organization that's not used to research or they're used to doing it themselves. So they're not used to partnering with someone else, and they're not used to having someone say like, oh, that's not really a survey, that's more of an interview, or oh, that's not really an interview, we need to actually go watch people to do this, or, you know, or this can't be answered in an interview survey or watching people, we need them to be in a diary study. They aren't used to having someone bring in all these different methods, and they, they aren't used to having someone sort of like find some insights and then tell them. So that's why it's so important to have a collaboration. I want you with me while I'm doing this research so that when I tell you, 
you know, the pens need to be blue, not red. You were there to hear everyone say they like blue better than red instead of, you know, throwing the report over the wall. I hadn't really thought before of, of sort of operations as a, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure you're saying this, but almost a Trojan horse that there's, that um, there are these sort of tactical objective problems to be solved, you know, under operations. How are we going to find these people? What What is it going to take logistically? What is it going to take legally and so on? But that that, um, that starts to change some of the conversations maybe that can happen internally. Like you said, well, if this is your problem, we recommend you go about it this way. I hadn't yeah. thought of that as an op- under an operations lens myself. It's really more in a B2B company than a consumer company because you have to manage so many relationships. And oftentimes a researcher wants to focus on sort of like the details of the research and not so much. Like ask any researcher. They don't want to do all the details around recruiting and scheduling people. Or most don't. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so you want someone who can do that. And then sometimes you researchers also aren't the people who know how to best sell their work or edit it down into like the three bullet points for an executive presentation. And it's helpful to have somebody who knows how to do that, um, you know, just sort of like editing and presenting and PR and marketing um, and also knowing who to market it to. Like, oh, I know that there's this, you know, sales VP in this office, you know, in Toronto who um, is going to be interested in this. That just sort of, you know, that mentality of like keeping all these like dots rolling together. And if you have someone who knows how to do that and also understands how to do research and what goes into research, that's what I see makes a really good manager from an operations perspective. There's the people management side, too. Um, so, you know, being able to mentor and coach and, and take care of people. But there's, uh, there's more and more in B2B research a need for someone specifically in this operations role to just sort of like help everybody and raise the brand of the team in the company or in the product team or the design team. It's or, so cool that we're at a point in this field, in this practice, where we acknowledge, as we always did, that there's a number of very different kinds of skills and expertises that are required that you just outlined a whole bunch of them. But that we're able to sort of say and, it's, and not be laughed out of the room like, Oh, that might be different people. That that that's what it's. You know, you talk about collaboration and the you know, collaboration with people with different strengths or superpowers. Well, and another role or sort of like expertise and skill that's being introduced more into companies is the academic anthropologist who's now working inside companies on a research team. And so, you know, like Epic used to be primarily all academics. And now there's a bunch of um, people from business involved in Epic and also people who used to only be academic anthropologists and ethnographers working on research teams inside tech companies or consulting agencies or whatever. So I recently hired a few anthropologists on my team, um, one who's a former professor, one who had applied um, anthropological anthropological research practices um, for market research, um, another who had like done um, research with an NGO, but also worked inside of a company recently. And I think that when you have that academic background and you bring it into a company, it's like a special sauce. You also bring in a special sauce if you've been working in tech for 15 years and you know the ins and outs of like how a product team works. But I like mixing those two things together because people learn off of each other. You like to mix the special sauce. Yeah. That's an extra special sauce. Yeah. So, for example, um, we decided as as a team that we wanted to sort of look at all of the internal blog posts and other things that had been written about customers and users um, from the point of view of people inside the company because – my team's new to this company. We're like, okay, let's take a look at everything that everybody else wrote. And I was trying to figure out how we would do that. Like, who knows how many internal blog posts there are and how many things that have been written about customer visits and things that different people know about users that they report out internally. And then I realized I have some former academics on my team. Academics who are now working as researchers in industry, they have skills in literature review. So brilliant. I took them and had them put together, like, how are we going to review this and code it? You know, special sauce, like, they absolutely know how to do that. It was really easy for them to put it together. And then took other people who had more sort of like industry experience or like application-focused experience and said, okay, now you can do what was set up. You can do the review following the system. 
and I have people who know how to set up systems, set up the system. So that's an example of the of the special sauce. They they know how to deal with. Yeah, those. and if you have a team who has mixed experiences like mm. that, then they just sort of like they lift each other up and they um, and they teach each other things. And and that's something that you can't learn if you're the only researcher or you're just one of a few researchers who all have exactly the same background. So you all come out of the. Um, whatever the programs are now at Carnegie Mellon and Stanford and Berkeley and University of Washington, on and on. And you go and get a job and you do, you know, remote remote interviewing and a, some focus groups and some other things. But everybody around you is doing exactly the same thing. Um, then you don't get a chance to sort of like up-level yourself. And you also, like if you're the person managing that team, you don't get a chance to learn new things from people on your team that you hired that like you don't have the same background of them. So it just improves humanity basically. So how do you think about like what the, you know, if team is kind of a collective noun of all these different, you know, different mixes of skills and backgrounds and aptitudes, how do you think about what the collective should be? Like what's the, how do you think about the mix? Of, of a whole team? Yeah. So I do miss the team I used to have, which had both research and analytics. I think being able to have people on your team who do data science or who are more like business analysts who know how to count things up and make charts um, or someone who knows how to um, like mix data together and and um, you know come up with reports out of it you can you get a much faster feedback between the analytics people and the research people analytics is like oh I did this I want to know why research is like I can go out and find out why or research says um, I need some access to people who have certain characteristics. Can you find me a list of them through analytics? Thank you so much. I'll go out and talk to them. Now I'll come back to you. And in most companies, those roles are separate. So it is here. Analytics is a separate team. We work super well together. But sometimes when you have them both on the team, it's it's really nice because you're both at the same team meeting and you're both seeing what they're doing. From a research perspective, having people who know, who are all quant or all qual or halfway in between or no, no both is useful because anybody who's in the job market right now, um, when they look for their next job, the requirements are going up and up and up. We don't want you to just be somebody who does interviewing. We need you to know how to design a survey. We need you to know how to do SQL queries. We need you to know how to do it. Like there's more and more requirements showing up in job descriptions now. And so if you can be a part of a team where somebody else knows that thing you don't know, it just, we're all going to, like, leave and get another job someday. Nobody stays somewhere forever. So it'll just help you when you're going out to look for your next job. So skill mm-hmm. development kind of through proximity yeah. to your colleagues. And it's also diversity. Like, anytime you have a diverse team, whatever you're defining diversity as, um, just makes for a better team environment. Um, because all these different perspectives around the table from all the different places they came from just make f- for, like, different things to feed into feedback about a project you're working on or something that's going on in the company. Or, you know, we didn't all come from the same school or the same program, so we don't have, you know, difference of thought thought in the way we approach a problem. So for you, you know, thinking about the teams that you that you've put together because you know because you're talking about different kinds of I, I, I don't know if diversity is the right word the way you're using it but you know qual and quant is sort of a or different orientations or, or and also academic and industry yeah. or in tech because I've worked in tech for 20 plus years um, I look for people to come work at the tech company I'm working at who haven't necessarily worked in tech before so look for people look you know look for adjacencies like you did research but you did it for a car company or you did research, but you did it for an agency um, so that they can bring different things into the team. That's what I mean by diversity. Yeah. You know research, but you used to be a professor. You know research, but you used to, you were working on an astrophysics PhD and decided that's not what you wanted to do anymore. And you realize things that you learned as a part of your graduate programs, you totally know how to do surveys and how to talk to people and, and how to do research. I had this uh, Twitter conversation with someone the other day, uh, and they asked me, where is a writing course that I can learn to be better at writing the kinds of things I have to create as a researcher? Mm-hmm. They can't find a course like that. They can find sort of persuasive writing, which is mm-hmm. for sales. And, you know, I kind of scratched my head and I thought, I don't know that that exists, but I went on this little sort of pontification as, you know, Twitter invites you to do about um, uh, about learning from adjacencies, like mm-hmm. take a you know, creative writing class, take a journalism mm-hmm. writing class. And in doing that, you would start to see, oh, here's how the lessons of doing this adjacent thing well mm-hmm. 
could apply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was the best advice that I had. I feel sort of affirmed from what you were saying that that adjacencies for certain kinds of things bring bring a certain kind of value. Yeah. So the Luma Institute, who put this framework together around design thinking methods so that it's easy to teach and easy to learn, um, calls that alternative worlds. Um, and I think that's a, a useful way to think about it, that for your person who's trying to figure out how to write a research report for whatever audience they're trying to serve. Well, that's storytelling, it's sales, it's marketing, it's um, it's slide development, it's, you know, all these other things. And you start thinking of it as, how would I think of this from the point of view of a salesperson? Or how would I approach this from the point of view of a marketing person who has to put customer stories on the web and sell that to somebody? Or how would I do this as the point of view of the person I'm presenting this research to? Like, what do I want to hear? gets you out of the sort of like, oh, I have to like have 10 slides and one has to have my methodology and Mm. (laughs) the end one has to have like recommendation. You can start thinking about it more as like, I want to tell this story so that they land on that naturally. Or they ask me questions about it when I'm done that will answer all those things so I don't have to have it all in my report. I feel like this is a a transgressive notion of expertise, though, especially in tech. Yeah. It would be nice for all researchers if they could just come in and do their research and research was valued and um, anything that researchers said they were learning from customers and users was taken and put into the roadmap. I don't know anywhere that happens. And because there isn't anywhere that happens and the way the culture of these teams work, you have to have this sort of like marketing and collaboration and partnership mentality around your work. If you're a consultant, you get a project, you do it, you collaborate, you sell it a little bit, you're done. You don't have to s- still hang out and make sure it's being used and follow up. and. It's just yeah. all sunshine and roses being exactly. a consultant, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't do it anymore. <laughs> you know, I had a I had a coach advising me in my consulting business, and what they said was, uh, one of, they said many things, but one of them was, um, you know, anytime you start talking with a prospective client, uh, show them, show me how you've helped someone like me, mm-hmm. and you know that 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 adjacency kind of framing was not. The, I mean, the advice was that wasn't as persuasive. So that could be, you know, what have you done in my industry in my vertical? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, and, you know, and I think researchers or anyone that just likes to sort of that gets deep into different kinds of problems, you know, we see connections between things mm-hmm. that you know we know why this problem is like this other problem, even mm-hmm. though it's different. Yeah, and uh, you want the other people to see that, and sometimes it's hard to show them a lens that will help them see that. Yeah, the way you saw it. Yeah. I think the advice was that's not that's not where you start the relationship. You start the relationship a little more close in. Yeah. Oh, this thing that you're doing? Yes, I have done that. <laughs> Even though, I mean, every problem is new in ways that yes. it's very hard to, to do that. But, yes. Um, you know, sort of starting the, showing relevancy right at the outset of the, of the conversation. When I ran a consulting agency, that's how I started it. Somebody asked me if I knew how to do something and I'd never done it before. And I said, I knew how to do it. And all of a sudden I had a consulting <laughs> so your career is just built on lies. Yes, is what, is what we're saying here. Okay. Yes, and we're leaving this in. Yeah. Well, I think that's true too. There's the the, the confidence to explore. Yeah. I mean, have you? You know, can you do this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Have you done it? Well, no, but I can do it. Yeah. I and mean, sometimes the question never comes up. Have you done this? It's just the can you? Yeah. Uh, so that's so we're talking sort of requests from the in the consultant side of things. What. Uh, you know, in inside organizations and any of the ones you've worked in, like how do how are projects formed? Who decides? How so to, many different ways. Yeah. Um, so I would say that if you're beginning research in a company, you're taking requests and you're probably using your boss or some other key stakeholders you recognize to decide which to work on. And you're probably prioritizing those in some sort of backlog, if that's in a spreadsheet or it's in Jira or whatever. So you're showing people sort of like, here's what's in my backlog. Here's what's coming up next. If you're a team, um, the way I prefer to run a research team, which is the way I'm, I'm gradually getting it set up here, how it was set up um, at, m- at my last couple of jobs, is to have researchers who are paired or embedded or whatever you want to call them, but they're primarily working with a product area, a product team, a feature team, a product area, however, you're, however your um, organization's set up. And they are servicing that team and, and 
partnering and collaborating with that team, and they own the research for that. But because they're a part of the research team, they also have a holistic view across the organization because they're also meeting with other researchers who are doing the same thing and seeing where their, where their work or where their product area or features sort of overlap or interlock with each other. Um, and then having some people who are more senior principal researchers just working on special strategic projects. So that could be, depending on a company, that you have someone who's more focused on market research or competitive research, might be someone who's focused more on um, research to understand where we should go next. So sort of like future casting and um, sort of like looking at what's going on, finding edge cases, um, seeing spots for innovation and, and other sorts of insights. And then also the operations side, people to manage panels of users and recruit people. And then there's always, depending on how many people there are, some sort of management tier for people management and coaching and that sort of thing. And when you talk about embedded, you and certainly a frame that you know you hear described uh, with some regularity, but your words are a little different. Uh, some people talk about at embedded that 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 researcher is on that team, sort of fully on that team. It's almost like um, you're almost describing like a work stream or like a customer or something. Yeah, because the way people work on teams now is not the way that HR software recognizes. So HR software, for example, recognizes I have a boss. He's a VP of design. Recognizes I have people who report to me, all the people on my team. Um, Maybe recognizes that I have people that might be good for 360 reviews, so my direct colleagues who also report to my boss. But that's such a limited view of what I call my team because I'll just talk for me. Like I work with lots of different people around the company who, if I was going to be reviewed, I would, I would want them to weigh in. People on my team, actually, we had a research team meeting this morning. I had them all bring a stakeholder map. Because I wanted to see, you know, that, that I have people who are sort of like embedded or paired within teams, like who are they working with and what does it look like compared with people on my team whose, whose work is sort of nebulous around all the different people that they're managing and, and all the different work that they're doing. And, and it was, it turned out that way. So if you're working on a, t you're a researcher on a team, um, a lot of people refer to the three-legged stool. But if you have a researcher, it's a four-legged stool. So you have someone from research, from engineering, from product, and from design all working together with like a common focus on, you know, how are we going to get this out the door, make sure it meets customer needs, solving a problem, all that sort of stuff. If you are somebody in operations or a principal researcher working on a strategic project, you, you just have a mess of people around you. And so all these people sort of like vacillate in between teams. Designers do the same thing. Designers are a part of the scrum team um, and they're a part of the design team. Engineers are a part of a team for, uh, you know, some sort of product or feature. They're also a part of an engineering team. And it gets even more complicated when your manager is in one city and you're in another city. Because if you're enough time zones away, you probably have somebody who's sort of like your dotted line manager in that city to help you with, like, all the things around your job. So, for example, I have a researcher in Barcelona. We can't look over each other's shoulders. There's only two hours a day when we're both at work. Um, so there's a um, director of design in that office who is her sort of who is her manager there. So if she has questions about like how does this work or how do I do this or who's who's in charge of this or help me review this, he can do that. No HR software recognizes that. Doesn't recognize she basically has two bosses. Doesn't recognize that I have one boss, but actually these three other people are kind of my bosses too doesn't recognize that that designer um, has a boss for whoever's running that scrum team, but that designer also reports to a design manager or director. So most people work that way now. There's very few people inside companies anymore who will say they belong to one team and that's all they belong to. Everybody belongs to like multiple teams. And, and we have this archaic structure around this person decides like your performance review and hopefully gets input from all these people. But um, but just lines people up in like lines and doesn't realize that it's a little more messy than that. So does that that gap between the reality and the the structure of the software? What's are there consequences to that for how we work? I don't think there's consequences. I I think it's just the way it is. I think there's more 360 reviews now, just in my experience, than there were 20 years ago because you work with so many other people now. I can remember jobs from early to mid-90s, nobody was doing 360 reviews at any of the jobs I had then. Like, I worked with a set of people in a ge geographical space. I didn't work with anybody else. Yeah, I think it's just more like 
it is what it is. And, you know, things have come in to like help manage and understand that. But um, we, the people who sort of like do this sort of like organizational management, haven't figured out how to accurately represent that in a structure of the software that manages the company. Some companies try to go, what was it, like Zappos that decided nobody had a manager? That seems like part of a reaction to that. Holacracy, that's what it was called. Yeah. Right, and so so we got into this because we were talking about, um, you know, what does it mean to be... There there's sometimes seems a tension between researchers are embedded or researchers are centralized. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is they're neither or both and that that's how work happens. Yeah, and you have to, you have to look at the culture of your org. How does your org work? Who wants to participate and who wants – it's that old racy model. Like who wants to be involved, who wants to be informed, who wants to partner with you? And wait, if it so – wait. You- just, Do you know the racy model? I know it, but I need I need it I need it clarified. <laughs> it's where you define. I might not get this right. It's like where you define who is responsible, accountable, who is interested in consulting on it, and who just wants to be informed. Okay. So if you think about a project, you always have people who sort of fall into those categories. So I just think it depends. Some cultures are very top down, and you know, as you go up the ladder, they only want to be informed and not as involved. Some cultures are more um, participatory, and as you go up the career ladder, everybody wants to participate and know and be involved, and so it d- just depends where you land. S- get a sense of like who just needs an inform, who actually wants to come along and you know sit with you to, while you do a remote interview, and you know travel three blocks away to visit the customer. Um, you know how far up the ladder does that go? So coming into, you know, coming to these organizations that have done very little with research to date, like understanding the culture and and, and seems like that's an that's gotta be an initial step to, yeah. to get the lay of the land. Yeah. Who's who's making decisions and what data are they using to make those decisions? Um, do they want any more data? Usually the answer is yes. Like any anybody wants to know more to make better decisions and, you know, in a in a corporation make more money. So figuring out who those people are, where the gaps are, what they need to know. And then another thing you can do um, when you start at a company is be the researcher yourself of that org. Because what you'll start to notice, just like any research project, is that you'll start hearing the same thing from multiple people. So you'll start hearing like, the one thing we've never figured out is whether people really like blue or red better. You know, there's always something that's like the one thing where people aren't aware that everybody has the same question, but because you got them to open up and talk and had casual conversation and, you know, used all your interview like tips and tricks to um, interview multiple different people who don't work with each other, you'll start to see a theme around something that everybody wants to know, but nobody knows, but nobody's like trying to figure it out because they don't know everybody else wants to know. I've seen that at every company. Yeah. <laughs> We're working on a project like that here right now where there's there's basically two things that I heard across the entire company when I first came here. And so I was like, okay, that's where I'm going to start some key research projects. And then I'm going to bring in some people who are interested in it. And then as I hire people in, I'm just going to start attaching researchers to different product areas and work with, you know, the people who run design to sort of think about which designers need the most help right now. Or, you know, what meets the business directives or the key priorities or the goals or whatever of the product organ of the company. Are there um, stages of evolution or sort of, I don't know if it's milestones, I'm thinking of some framework that, you know, at these points you're kind of coming in where there's very little and you start building in a way that is specific to what you're learning about the culture. Mm -hmm. Are there stages that you can identify that you're, you know, passing through or, or moving towards? Oh, yes. So once you once you get sort of like programs and tools set up, you don't really have to do as much anymore. So programs and tools, like, is there decent so- survey software? Do we have access to users? How do we access them? Is there a panel? When, when we do um, research, do we have standard agreements that we sign with the humans that we're doing research with? Um, repositories, where are we storing everything? How are we storing it? How are we accessing it? Do we need transcripts? Do we have a tool for that? Do we need to do card sorting? Do we have a tool for that? Like just sort of like sorting out all the tools and processes for the practice. Um, what was the question? I got lost on a rabbit hole of no, process and tools. No, it was a good, it was a good rabbit tools. hole. Uh, <laughs> you, were answering the, you were answering the question. So what are the stages or kind of milestones? Oh, yeah. Okay. So looking at like what's needed that is um, more like capital improvements. So like we need a new roof. Okay. We'll get a roof. It'll last for 20 years. Done. 
Um, so things like how you pay incentives and research agreements and all that's that's sort of like the roof. Then you need like everything that pays the electric bill and the gas bill all the time. So those are projects. So what projects need attention right now? And you learn that from interviewing sort of like all the key stakeholders you're going to work with, which in my example earlier was once you interview a whole bunch of them, you start to find out that there are some key things that everybody wants to know. Um, and then figuring out either with your boss, if she or he knows, or with key stakeholders, like if I was to start bringing in researchers one at a time, where would we start? Who would benefit the most? What would be most impactful? Or said another way, sort of like, what are the things launching soon or later? Um, what are the um, business goals or what's in the strategy or what, what are the business directives or all those sorts of things that make a company run? Um, and that, that helps you because then you're making sure you're focusing on something that um, – is actually going to eventually affect the company's bottom line. So when the research comes out and it helps that, then you've been like, okay, this is how we do it at this company. Um, we're not academic. We don't go sit back and sort of like think about things and just, you know, go research things out of curiosity. We look at where the company's going to make sure we're helping it and helping it do better with the research that we're doing. And then what's the, I don't know, what's a five years? I, I, well, I, I, that's a presumptive <laughs> question. They're all presumptive questions. Um, what's sort of the horizon for which you would have vision, the time horizon? So for the times that I've come into a company and there's been no research or one or two like here, individual researchers, what I've told people is it's going to take 12 to 18 months um, with budget and with headcount to get this into a modern research practice. And here's how we'll do it incrementally. And here's how we'll check in and benchmark and measure it along the way. When I was at Autodesk and I inherited a team and then I sort of hired and added on to it, um, it was much different. These were really old products that had um, a, a really amazing installed base, and some of them were market leaders. It wasn't like companies that were two years old, five years old, or 10 years old, or 15 years old. Like once you're at 30 years, you sort of, you know, you're settled in a certain way. And so I did different things. I tried to um, better understand the products and better understand the company to see where we could add value. And then also, because that was a much larger company, um, see where research was happening across the company to see if we could sort of like combine efforts. Um, so if, for example, I went to, oh, I don't know, some some company that's like 25 years old that has, you know, say a thousand researchers, because there are some companies out there now that have that many. And I was plopped in as a director of research with, you know, 20 to 50 direct reports. It's a much, much different role than coming into the company and setting something up. There you're coming in and you're saying, how is this done? Is there any way it could be improved? Is there any way I could sort of like do so? No, there isn't. Okay. So how do we prioritize things? How do we, you know, have impact? How do we collaborate and share out and, you know, be good corporate citizens and be a part of the team? I've realized with this, um, with this third job that I'm on now after doing consulting for many years, um, that I do really like growing things. That um, there's a certain there's a there's a challenge to it that like gets me into work every day. Like, oh, we have to figure this out. Oh, there's lots of problems to solve. Oh, you know, how are we going to prioritize this, or how are we going to solve for this, or you know, how how am I going to find someone to fill this role? Or you just listed a bunch of things that are as positives that someone either in a different emotional state or in a different <laughs> sort of mindset would could frame those all as negatives. Yeah, like, yeah. You, you just you have to. You have to understand the challenge you like to work on. Is the challenge, um, I want to be the person who works with the team to help them figure out what they need to solve? Or do I want to solve an organizational challenge while also working on you know, business priorities and solving problems? So th this is something that kind of sparks you. Yeah, and I didn't realize that until it was like three months ago or so. I was um, we hosted a breakfast here, and somebody was asking me um, what I was doing, and they were like, "Well, it sounds like you're really good at that because you've done that three times now, and you started your own company." And I was like, "Oh, that's the first time I realized. Like, this is this is my thing that I like to do." Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> do you want? Sometimes you have to be almost fifty to <laughs> like have finally found yourself. <laughs> Right. It's the journey, not a destination, yes. right? I, I'm sure you're going to keep finding yourself. Yes. Anything else that uh, that I should have asked you about you want to share with us? The collective us. I know it's just you and I in a room. but the Well, there is one other thing I've noticed in the past few years. I have 
used a community platform that's sold by a company meant for marketing and brand teams and have used it for product and design research. And there's something about, so support always has its help forums. Marketing and brand usually do focus groups, but now sometimes they run online communities where you can, you know, get badges and win things for participating in their research or telling stories or whatever. There's a space in between that people who are on research teams at companies um, sometimes use and sometimes don't. So typical team might have a panel, particularly if you're B2B and it's hard to get access to people, or even if you're a consumer um, focused company and you just want to make sure you have like your 10,000 people who you can access at any time to easily invite to research. But I think there's something about the way that um, people on social media interact with each other in a group and one-to-many fashion and many-to-many fashion that is happening in some ways in research teams and sometimes not. So if you're a researcher and you can at any time poke into a community that belongs to you, this is my panel, but in your panel, they can't all see each other. Um, in a community, they can see each other. And so it acts a bit like a support forum, a bit like this marketing and branding sort of sort of like, what do you think of our new colors sort of thing? Or this is our new video for you know our marketing campaign. But instead, it's for product and design. I've noticed there's a certain fear of it. Oh, my God, if we get our users and customers to talk to each other, what will they say about us? But I, I think if you get over that fear and you open it up and put together a private space where they're all talking together and you and your product design, engineering, marketing, sales, whatever partners are also in there, you create um, this sort of like brand loyalty and product loyalty that you don't necessarily get just from marketing, brand, and sales and just from support. Um, so I've, I've done that in my last two companies, created this sort of community where people could see each other um, and we could interact with them in little like pop-up sort of projects. Um, haven't done it here yet. But I've also, but when I talk to the vendor that I've used um, for doing this, the last time they demoed it for me, I saw that the examples they were giving me were for a product and design team. So I was like, huh, you're now selling to product and design teams. So there's something going on with people picking that up and doing that. How do you set people's expectations, the people that are participants in this community, for what, you know, as you said, it kind of, it, it, it has elements of other kinds of communities that are maybe more familiar. Well, you, you have to make sure, particular in business settings, that, um, you know, don't share anything that you wouldn't want your competitors to see because you don't know if your competitors in this community or not. Um, we're focusing on sort of like, you know, your work and your use cases of these sorts of technology. Don't disclose anything that you shouldn't be disclosing. Um, but if you're in a space where people are using a technology where they get a lot out of finding out how other people are using it too, then you create um, relationships with each other. Um, and then you create your own relationship with them. Another downside is you can get bullies. So you need to have guidelines. <laughs> we can kick you out if you behave in one of these ways. And with panels, because it's the company to the user or customer, and that's it, um, it's harder to find sort of like an intrinsic incentive for someone to participate in research. In a community, you usually don't have to have any incentives that are hoodies or cash or gift cards or whatever, because the intrinsic incentive is that they're getting value from other people being in there. And then every once in a while, being able to talk to a product manager or talk to a designer or talk to somebody else. So I think that, I don't know if that's something that'll keep going, but I see it as a way, particularly in B2B, um, research to provide value for your customers that actually helps out your salespeople um, and, you know, gives your product people and design people a way to interact with um, users. Um, and then also um, give the users support that they're probably also getting over in the support form, but a different kind of support because you feel like you're part of a group. Uh, it's compelling to me to think about just blurring the different kinds of interactions that companies have yeah. with people and right so like you said there's sort of there's marketing there's research there's support um and we you know we structure the companies around those kinds of functions and the tools yeah. and, and so on but and it can make it hard to see the end-to-end -end customer experience yeah yeah what uh so let's, maybe we can rewind like how did you sure. end up in research as a as a profession Back when I graduated from college in the early 90s, I went to work for a startup cell phone company as a statistician. My background's in statistical computing and economics from um, my university education. And so I was analyzing what were then considered very, very large sets of data, terabytes of data. <laughs> 
I was running a neural net program on a SunSpark station. I don't even think it had a gigabyte of RAM. Yeah, it had two processors. It was amazing. It would take like four to six days to run something to spit out a model. And if I got it wrong, I had to do it all over again. But what I was doing was I was working in a marketing organization, and I was there to help them like, figure out things like, who should we sell call waiting to? Like, should we just sort of like, um, you know, sell, try to sell to everyone or should we target people? So I was figuring out targeted lists based on behavior that we saw and cell phone use data to help the marketing team understand who to sell things to. When they did that, what I realized was I didn't know why the people were buying it. Like, just because I could predict, like, because you have these, like, usage analytics, it makes you more likely to buy. But why is that? And a couple of things happened then. Um, the company I was working for got bought by AT&T, became what is now AT&T Wireless Services. When you get bought by a much larger company, a bunch of chaos ensues. Um, your job often changes. Your boss often changes. I was very young. I was in my early 20s. Um, and the at that exact time, the uh, mosaic came out and the web became graphical. So there were all these things happening that occurred at this point in my life where I was like, huh, it's my first job out of college, but now I'm interested in knowing why these things happen. I just taught myself HTML. I figured out how to put together a web page. Oh my goodness, there's this thing called Match.com. And I met this girl and she lives in San Francisco and I want to date her. Oh, I'll just go take this job at this company in San Francisco, this web company that has like 20 people and they're making websites and they're from all different sorts of places. Um, and I became a QA manager there, once again, sort of being asked, can you do this, not have you done this? And I said, yes. Um, and then from QA, realizing that, um, you know, we didn't really know what the users were doing. And I, at this point, had never heard of user research. Uh, but I was friends with people who were doing that at different companies. Um, and so I asked them about it. And then I left that company, went to a startup, was also a QA manager, um, got laid off when the company get, didn't get its next round of funding, went and did some consulting, doing like web development for the summer, set up a company that I had, had intended to be a company that did QA for web apps. And somebody came to me and said, um, can, you, can you do some research interviews with users while you're doing you know, browser testing? And I said, yes, we can. And I was like, here's my chance. I've always wanted to know why people are doing things. Um, and so I happened into it that way. And in the mid to late 90s, anybody could do that. You could teach yourself PHP. You could declare yourself to be a web marketer. You could say, I'm an information architect. Like, you just said what you were, and you could just do it. Um, so I quickly went and found some friends and said, I have this consulting project. Um, I don't know what to do. Help me out. Um, and they were like, well, you do, you know, A, B, like the things I just mentioned, you have to do A and B and C and D. And I was like, okay. So I did A, B and C and D. I did the project. I got paid. I thought it was amazing. I was like, I want to do this again. <laughs> it's like a kid who gets ice cream for the first time. Like I will have more of that. And that's how it got started. And in consulting, what you need from my experience is you need one or two projects as reference projects. And then that helps you get the next project and the next project and the next project. And then it was 17 years later. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, if you um, you're saying that there was a time when you could sort of declare yourself to be this thing. Yeah, when the web was new, when this new technology was coming out, and consumers were grabbing onto it, and companies were seeing that money could be made there. Um, and there, were, people think now that there are more jobs than people, but then there really was more jobs than la the labor market could supply because the labor market didn't have the skills and the education system wasn't educating people with those skills. For example, in looking for research interns for this coming summer, I interviewed people who were getting degrees in user research, like a bachelor's of science in user research. And I was like, wow, like companies are now preparing people and there's a whole education system out there in these D schools and I schools and everything now. It didn't exist in the 90s. Right. I sometimes feel like, oh, I'm, yeah, because I came up through the same system or lack of system yeah. that you did. If I, I wanted to do this job now, if I was, say, if I had gotten my master's in, you know, at the Berkeley iSchool or whatever, um, and I went and got a job as like a senior researcher at a tech company, and I wor worked myself up way up. It would be much, much different than my experience of teaching myself and figuring it out. And yeah. Is anything, what's lost or gained in that evolution, if anything? Well, I can clearly see that um, my sort of like, YouTube didn't exist then, but it would have been like the University of YouTube, the way that I went about teaching myself how to do research and starting up a whole consulting agency around it 
would have been much different if I had been schooled in a particular way in how to do research. Um, I think some things would have been lost because it wouldn't have been sort of like me and a couple other people just sort of figuring out how to do something and you come up with new stuff. Um, but I think some things would have been gained. I might have had more confidence, like I have a master's in this, so I know how to do it. Or, you know, I did my thesis on this. And so there's a certain amount of imposter syndrome that goes around, even if you do have that education. But sometimes when you don't and you make it up yourself, you can doubt whether or not you really know what you're doing. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> I remember just being in, a, being in a consultancy kind of around that period of time and that every prospective client that came in, we would you know, have to write a proposal for what we we're going to do. And it just felt like like writing a master's thesis every time or some just mm -hmm. impossible thing to give birth to, like like explaining <laughs> what it was, deciding what the steps, trying to articulate yeah. those steps. We just didn't have any point of reference. And so we sort of figuring it out every time until I think at some point we started to settle in like, oh, here's kind of what, what it looks like. You know, now like writing a proposal is not hard. I mean, yeah. There's many other hard things. But now but, you have templates and you can copy it. And, and yeah. you know, I, I mean, I have a narrative that runs through my yeah. head. Like, oh, yeah, it kind of goes like yeah. this. You know, we yeah. we have more tribal knowledge as well as Yes, more part. people to reach out to to get examples from, too, than used to exist. Right, right. We, uh, right, in this era of this consultancy, not only were we figuring it out, we were doing so in pretty much isolation. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, you knew a few people, but... Most of us at that era just you didn't. There wasn't a community of researchers yeah, to kind exactly. of connect to. Yahoo groups did not exist yet. <laughs> Google groups was not there. Google wasn't yeah. even here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's great. This is a very interesting conversation. I I learned a lot. It was great chatting I, with you, I Steve. Appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Anything else? Are we are we done? Any last thing? It's fantastic. All right. Yes. We're Perfect out of here. ending. Mic drop. All right. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Dollars to Donuts. Go to portugal.com slash podcast for the transcript, as well as links for this episode. And at the website, you can also check out all the other episodes and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual places. My books are available at Amazon and at rosenfeldmedia.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Bruce Todd.